0: Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 217. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing one movie which is kind of almost not a movie, plus a classic of film noir that for some reason had slipped my attention. The second one is The Actual Jungle, John Huston's movie from 1950 starring Sterling Hayden, Sam Jaffe and Louis Calhoun. Then we're going to do a 1968 mashup of movies, television and other bits of marginalia, which was done by Joe Dante and it's called The Movie Orgy. So sit back, I will get the contact details out of the way and we'll get the show started. How the fuck are you people? Um, Yeah, interesting times here. I'm officially either unemployed or retired. Now, I'm not yet sure which, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, but uh, today's technically my last day at work, but it happens to also be my rostered day off. So I've said goodbye to the people at work. I've brought my stuff home, and I'm just waiting for them to give me the go-away money, which happens next week. Uh, So, yeah, it's a big change in my life. And I'm kind of okay with it. I'm not sure what long-term the future is going to bring, but something will come along. And I do have resources and skills and all of the wherewithal to keep – body and soul together. Uh, Sally is kind of okay with it too, though she is dreading the fact that I will be spending a lot more time at home. Nonetheless, um, we've kind of talked things through and we're working things through. And um, thank you to the listeners for the love you've given me and the patience, because this one's about a week late and I do apologise for that, but life does sometimes require me to take a little breathing space and then regroup to podcast. Podcast. I'm actually recording this on a Wednesday morning and it's pretty shitty outside. It's been cold and foggy and horrible and not my kind of weather at all. I'm also going to try to get a Martian driving podcast out um, as soon as I possibly can this week because we're going on a bit of a road trip. Yep, we're getting at the Wagon Queen family truckster, uh, otherwise known as the Yeti, our big new white RAV4. We call it the Yeti because it's white and big. Uh, and we're going to do, a, you know, about a week or so away. So we're going to drive up to Canberra and Eden on the south coast of New South Wales. Then we're driving up to Sydney to visit the family. So I'm going to catch up with a few friends in Canberra as well. Haven't been to the nation's capital for a number of years. So someone and I want to do a few days there. It'll be great. Uh, then up to Sydney. And then we're going to fang it back down the Deadly Hume Highway, to Melbourne all in one go. Uh, It's going to be easier in the Yeti than it was in the previous car, which was known as Merlot, because basically there's cruise control. Now, we've both fallen in love with cruise control. We didn't have it in the previous car. But when you're doing 110 on the freeway and you whack the cruise control in, basically all you've got to do is steer. And that's kind of fun. It's a little freaky when you first do it, but it'll mean that the drive's going to be quite easy. Now on the way up we're going through, um, and you might want to follow this on Google Maps if you're not from around here, we're going to go down through Gippsland, Bansdale, and then up to Eden, and then we're going to cut inland on the Snowy Mountains Highway up to Cooma and then up to Canberra and then straight up to Sydney. So we're really looking forward to that. We're going to get there for weekend after next when my seven-year-old nephew has his soccer final. So we're going to be there for his soccer game and we're going to hang out with the family for a little bit and then come back. Um, We're planning other trips in the future, so I'll kind of work the podcast around that. But uh, yeah, it's it's time to chill for a little bit and uh, just kind of, Regather and regroup and do the things that I enjoy doing, amongst which, of course, is watching movies. So, I'm going to crank up my letterboxed page and just refresh myself on the movies that I've watched lately and just kind of go through those a little bit. Uh, I've been watching a few things, obviously, I've had a little time off. I, I used up my sick leave before I left work for the simple reason that I had sick leave that I could use before I left work and so um, I did so Uh, I did see a remake of a previous movie uh, which was from about 30 years ago called Going in Style the remake stars Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine and Alan Arkin about three old codgers who get fucked over by their bank and by the company they used to work for for their pension and who decide to rob the bank to get their pension money it's pretty fun in some ways. Um, it, it's kind of no better than it needs to be. You um, do get some cool stuff in it. Uh, Alan Arkin's particularly funny. Michael Caine's particularly funny, and even Morgan Freeman lights up, light, lightens up a bit. And the other cool thing about it is it's a 2016 movie which has Anne Margaret in it. Now, we all know Anne Margaret's racked up a number of birthdays, but it's kind of cool seeing Anne Margaret in a movie again. And I did enjoy that. And she gets to sing karaoke with Alan Arkin, who, of course, started out as a folk singer back in the 1950s with a band called the Tarriers, I think it was. They did the original um, recorded version of the Banana Boat song way back in the 1950s, and Alan Arkin was a part of that, so that was kind of okay to see from that point of view. Um, you know, it was on, I think, either Netflix or my streaming box, something like that. And no, it wasn't on Netflix, it was on my streaming box. And I was looking for something to watch that wasn't too taxing because I was trying to chill out with all of the changes going on. And yeah, that's not too bad. Picked up a couple of cheap Roger Corman compilations in 1970s exploitation movie compilations. And I was kind of going through them, and saw a movie called *The Velvet Vampire*, directed by Stephanie Stephanie Rothman, which is a bit hard to say when you've just eaten a lolly. Um, it stars Michael Blodgett, uh, Cherie Debur, and Celeste Jarnell. It's a kind of like a Carmilla female vampire kind of thing, set in the California desert. Very small, small budget, um, almost entirely a three-hander piece which has got some nudity in it, which is probably the only redeeming feature of the film, is the nudity. It, um, it is a bit clumsy and a bit stiff and stilted, and the acting's no better than it has to be. But um, I've kind of got a soft spot for 1970s exploitation movies with a bit of nudity in them. So I did watch that. Um, I can neither recommend nor non-recommend it. If you're into that kind of thing, you can definitely... Um, pick it up fairly cheaply. I also then decided what I wanted to do was visit two of my favourite movies again. So I re-watched on DVD The Bad and the Beautiful from nineteen fifty two starring Kirk Douglas directed by Vincente Minnelli. Also has Gloria Graham, Lana Turner, Barry Sullivan, Walter Pigeon, a bunch of other people and it's my favourite movie of all time. So I rewatched that. Then I rewatched a movie that Minnelli and Douglas did about ten years later. Two Weeks in Another Town, which also stars Edward G. Robinson, Sid Charisse and Dalia Lavi, which is set in Rome and it's about filmmaking with American uh, filmmakers in Cinecittà Studios in Rome. And I like that a lot. It's a, it was butchered by the studio after Minnelli um, finished the project. It could have been a lot better than it was, but I still like it a lot. Um, I will rewatch Django, the original Django with Franco Nero, which is kind of... you got to be in the right headspace for a spaghetti western of this type. And I kind of was in the mood for watching weird shit with Franco Nero dragging a coffin around a muddy um, western set in Spain. And enjoyed that. Um, for what it was, it's... Um, not fantastically great, but it's weird and interesting, and all of the hookers in the frontier bars look like they just stepped out of Fellini movies. Um, I really do have to kind of go into do a, um, a Django podcast at some stage, because there is um, there is a lot of fun in these things, and I put it out on social media because I wasn't sure whether the term spaghetti western was pejorative or descriptive. And overwhelmingly, from a wide range of friends with a wide range of opinions, they came about that we got a consensus on the fact that it's descriptive, but it may once have been a pejorative against um, Italian and Spanish and and other kind of southern Mediterranean westerns. But uh, that was kind of fun to watch and uh, really kicked back and enjoyed the soundtrack and the funky um, theme song which, of course, Quentin Tarantino did reprise a little bit in Django Unchained. So I kind of grooved on that. And then I hit three solid Roger Corman movies from the late 1950s. First one was Attack of the Crab Monsters, which has Russell Johnson from Gilligan's Island in it. And it's kind of low budget, but there's some thought behind it. The the scripts held up, all three of these held up. There are some spooky moments and some eeriness, and they've really thought through the concepts quite well. The second one I watched was War of the Satellites, which has Dick Miller and Richard Devon in it. And that's kind of cool and interesting and has some thought behind it way beyond the budget. I really should do these on a Martian Drive in podcast in the future. And the third one is Not of This Earth, which had um Beverly Garland and Paul Birch in it, about a guy, an eccentric guy with an old house. Who gets a nurse into giving blood transfusions, and the nurse doesn't know that he's actually an alien, and a kind of um, salient point head, you know, kind of like a a a scout for an alien invasion, and that one showed up pretty well. There's some spooky bits, particularly when the aliens are talking about things, which show that they don't think exactly like human beings do. And the dialogue, even though Paul Birch was an actor that I mostly knew at the time, from a TV series about truckers called Cannonball that was on in the 1950s and early 1960s when I was a very small child. Um, And he's a bit stiff as the alien, but it kind of fits the role. And um, yeah, and it's got enough spookiness there and enough weirdness there to really kind of keep me happy. While I was watching it. And it did engage me more than I expected it to. I think uh, I'm going to have to revisit more of these very early Corman movies. Because there is a little bit of depth to them that I wasn't really aware of before. And that was kind of fun to enjoy. Um, I also binge watched the first season of an Australian crime TV series. The Jack Irish TV series. There were some telly movies uh, done about... Um, Peter Temple's Jack Irish character from his novels and the season one of the Jack Irish TV series came out which involved all sorts of interesting crime things Um, there's a Hillsong type happy clap of pentecostal church which is involved in some nefarious deeds there's also um islamic terrorists in the philippines involved in it It, uh, was filmed here in melbourne some of it not too far away from my place in fact there's a um general store scene in the first season of jack irish which is filmed down at werribee south which is maybe five kilometers from my place i know the store quite well but um that was a a lot of fun It, it Combines seriousness with lightness and um, Guy Pearce is very good as the titular character as is the supporting cast and pe- particularly people like Aaron Pedersen who was the star of re- two really good Australian crime movies uh, Mystery Road and Goldstone both directed by Ivan Sen and the nice thing is that The two movies, Mystery Road and Goldstone, have now generated a TV series as well, which is currently being filmed in Western Australia with Aaron Pedersen playing Jay Swan, the the protagonist of those two movies. So that's kind of cool that um, Ivan Sen's work, and particularly Aaron Pedersen's work as Jay Swan, who's a very complex character. He's an Indigenous police detective with a lot of troubles. Uh, apart from being an Indigenous police detective. And I'm really looking forward to that TV series when it does come out. But uh, that's pretty much all that I've been watching. I have done a lot of renovations. Uh, I did, as I mentioned, may have mentioned before, I did um, purchase online an enormous 55-inch 4K TV set. But I misread it, and it's being delivered at the end of August. I thought it was the end of July for some reason. But it is being delivered at the end of August, uh, early September. So I will have a big-ass TV screen in the living room where we now have reclining armchairs so I can just kick back and watch movies on a fat screen and just um, probably require me to go to the gym a lot more often to uh, compensate for the sedentary comforts of the TV viewing area that we have now. But it's a very much a first-world problem and it's one that we've kind of been working towards tarting up the main movie viewing area at home here, and we've successfully done that now. We're just waiting on the TV set to arrive, so I'm looking forward to that as well. So anyway, I'm going to take a break now, and when I get back, I'm going to do these in reverse order because I think Ashfield Jungle requires to be at the tail end of this. I'm going to talk about the 1968 mashup of various films and clips which runs for four and a half hours, which is known as the movie orgy that, uh, as I said, Joe Dante put together way back in the 1960s where you had to do physical anything of things. So I'll put, the, um, I'll put a little bit of music on first and then we'll get into the movie orgy. Was Julie London singing "Hot Toddy"? If singing is quite the right word, um, yeah. So on to the movie orgy in 1968. A film student called Joe Dante, who went on to do things like Gremlins and The Howling and all sorts of other good quality fun films. Uh, with these, made John Davidson, who went to work for Roger Corman soon afterwards, put together. Um, A compilation of clips which they edited mindfully in a way. They wanted to kind of do a meta-narrative. They wound together a bunch of different B-grade science fiction movies from the 1950s with contemporary commercials and public service announcements and um, archival footage of Richard Nixon and Dwight D. Eisenhower um, kids TV shows TV westerns TV crime shows into what was at first a seven hour compilation of film. Now John Davidson provided the clips for Joe Dante to wed together and the seven hour version I can't find but I found a four and a half hour version of the movie orgy which I watched and it blew my mind in a lot of ways. There's a lot of Boomer nostalgia in it, of course, because in 1968 the Boomers were just becoming adults in a lot of cases, to the extent that some of them did. And um, they, suddenly Joe Dante puts together this crazy compilation, which was then travelled around the country, um, sponsored by Schlitz Beer. They actually travelled around the country showing the seven-hour versioning in college towns to various college students and it was really wildly loved. Now the problem with the movie ultimately is the copyright for the material that they mashed up lies with probably 50 other companies. It doesn't actually reside with Joe Dante and his people though. From my point of view, it's a work of art, so it kind of it's almost a collage of mid-20th century video culture. And I like it a lot. Now, I'm going to play a little bit of audio from some of uh, the Movie Orgy. You can find it on Torrent if you look carefully. There is um, a shorter version of it on YouTube. But um, uh, on the secret Torrent site that I accessed it on, we got the four and a half hour version. So I'll just play some of the audio from uh, a version of the Movie Orgy. Now, this clip goes for about four and a half minutes, which is a tiny fraction of what I saw on the screen when I watched the um, four and a half hour version of the movie Orgy.
2: You haven't got a son. She gave him away
1: right after he was born. She doesn't even know who has him. You haven't got a son. She She gave him away. 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 She gave him away.
3: Watch out! Watch out for laxatives that foam, fizz, fall apart in your stomach. A laxative that dissolves in your stomach may cause stomach upset. As you can see, it's down here where you need the help. Not in the stomach, but down here where the lower digestive system is blocked. That's why you need Carter's Little Liver Pills, because they quickly move past your stomach right into the lower digestive tract. Immediately, it starts to unclog the blocked passageway. Unlike ordinary laxatives, Carter's is guaranteed not to dissolve in your stomach. No chance of upset leaves your stomach calm. It works where it should, deep in the lower digestive tract. So watch out for laxatives that foam, fizz, fall apart in your stomach. Get Carter's, the laxative that works where it should, deep in the lower digestive tract. Carter's Little Liver Pills, for safe regularity without stomach upset, only 54 cents. Come A case this one, the whole lung has been infected. Everything depends on complete accuracy. One slip could mean death. To help him concentrate, Dr. Getty smokes filter-tipped cigarettes.
2: you it. We've been here twenty hours already.
3: I wouldn't mind being so hungry, but I can't feel my legs anymore. I haven't had any feeling in my legs for five hours. I wonder if Harris got through all right. Harris will get through, if anybody can.
2: You know what I wish? What? I wish I knew what the hell my next line
3: is. Why, you... Saying what, Rick? Oh, great. It's rough making pictures, but ain't it wonderful?
0: For safe regularity without stomach upset, only 54 cents. So that's just a sample. It's crazy. It's nineteen sixty stuff. It mixes up things like Mighty Mouse with Attack of the 50-Foot Woman starring Alison Hayes and Yvette Vickers. I'll just go through a list of some of the movies that they mash up in this one because it's... Impressive the, that they got the clips for a start. And you've got to remember, this is all film, not video. Uh, they had a blooper from the Twilight Zone, King Kong, Duck Soup, A Night at the Movies with Robert Benchley, uh, Woman Under Suspicion, Pinocchio, The Bank Dick with W.C. Fields, Buck Privates, Come Home with Abbott and Costello, The Howdy Doody Show, The Naked City, The Lone Ranger... You Bet Your Life. There's a um, clip with a muscle man and Groucho Marx in it. Sky King, the TV series about a guy who flew a plane. The Roy Rogers Show, um, a short film about surviving atomic attack. Hopalong Cassidy, The Adventures of Superman, Jackie Gleason Show. Um, bandstand, Commando Cody, Sky Marshal the Universe, which is kind of cool. Beasts from 20,000 Fathoms, The Wild One with Brando. Creatures from the Black Lagoon. Adventures of Ring Tin Tin Tarantula, including the clip right at the end of Clint Eastwood as a fighter pilot. Life and Legend of Wired Up. There's a really cute little clip there. Um, Mighty Mouse. As I said, Moby Dick, the United Fifty Six John Huston version, which relates to the second movie I'm going to talk about in the podcast, which is a John Huston film. The Rifleman TV series, the giant claw beginning of the end with those giant locusts attacking Chicago in it. Teenagers from Outer Space, the giant healer monster. Uh, there's an extended sequence of a really weird... Brett Halsey, a movie from 1959 called Speed Crazy. And another one from College Confidential, which stars Steve Allen, amongst other people. There's a clip from the absent-minded professor with Fred Murray flying a car. Uh, a little clip from Batman, The Green Berets. The, there's a clip from the trailer of that, the John Wayne film, which is pretty atrocious. And all sorts of other things. There's nudity clips from um, kind of silent era nudist films everything is just kind of mashed together but the interesting thing that Dante does with the stuff is there's a kind of meta narrative he weaves in and out of the clips and there are times when you're watching it you think what he's done here is he's created a whole bunch of different alien invasions all happening at once and because of the way that Joe Dante edited them it feels like The movie is telling us that all of these alien invasions uh, of locusts and giant claws and all sorts of other things are all happening simultaneously. In fact, this was the um, thing that uh, Joe Dante did that got him the gig. First off, editing trailers for Roger Corman in the 1960s and then directing films for Roger Corman. So in a sense, it was a, a kind of greeting card towards the future career of Joe Dante. Um, The movie was shown at a film festival in 2008 in its entirety, but because it showed copyright material, they couldn't charge admission. And the other thing I liked about it is there are things I'd only ever heard about but not seen. There's a TV series from the 1950s called Andy Gang, which stars the cowboy actor Andy Devine, um, which has a kind of evil little frog called Froggy, and a weird little scene where he picks up a cat and a mouse and then puts them down and then they change to puppets of that cat and that mouse who plays, who then played Jesus Loves Me, Yes I Know while Andy Devine sings the song. It's a clip that's got to be seen to be believed. It's weird what was considered children's entertainment in the 1950s. A large, kind of gap-toothed, portly and, and quite ugly man uh, telling Bible tales with uh, an evil kind of frog puppet as his psychic now the interesting thing about froggy the frog puppet in this one is it's a major plot point in one of george R. R. martin's novels the armageddon rag the protagonist and one of his friends were obsessed with andy's gang the tv show and in fact his friend adopted the nickname of froggy and it's a reference that's all the way through the novel and I, didn't, I heard about it through the novel, but I hadn't actually seen any of the clips. And it's kind of one of those things where you go, wow, that was sort of what children's entertainment was in the 1950s. Um, it was was boring as fuck and very stilted with a kind of curtain backdrop and, and very limited sets. But um, that's what people had in those days, and that's what kids watched, uh, along with lots of violent westerns, which, of course, is another great advantage. And they do show a number of clips from Westerns. It's almost like a brain dump of pop culture from the middle of the 20th century, curated and arranged by somebody who knows what they're doing. He's a film buff and a kind of pop culture buff. And it's, it impressed me no end. You can kind of watch it and then go away and watch some more of it the way... And and this is one of my kind of vulgar pleasures. Watching trailer compilations. There are any number of them out on the internet where... People have laced together trailers. There are Kaiju trailer compilations out there. There are crime movie ones. There's Asian martial arts cinema trail compilations, exploitation ones. There are five um, discs of Alamo Drafthouse compiled cra- uh, trailers. And it's a kind of thing you can sit down and watch. If you, don't, if you want to turn your brain off, you don't want anything with a kind of plot or a narrative, but you want to kind of absorb some popular culture one of the things you can do is find a a trailer compilation or five and just sit back and watch them while you're doing other things even. And it's one of the ways, too, of going, okay, I hadn't seen that movie. I'm going to track that movie down because the trailer looks really good. So it's almost like a tasting plate for exploitation cinema to watch these trailers. And one of the things that Joe Dante's movie orgy gives us is a really weird and really eclectic taster plate of middle of the 20th century audiovisual culture. There are things like the the PSA for Anne Margaret uh, supporting the Vietnam Wars, a weird thing. They have Richard Nixon in the 1950s when he was running for vice president with Dwight D. Eisenhower doing the famous Chequers speech and directly appealing to the American public that he's not a crook, which based on subsequent history, was kind of comical, but it was a very important um, part of the way television changed politics, to have the Chequers speech in there, and um, it's, it's kind of folksy and homey, and Nixon projects okay through the screen, and this is the first time that this kind of thing was done, but he wasn't anywhere near as good a communicator as Jack Kennedy and, and other subsequent people. There was no media training, really, in those days. But again, you can see all of this stuff in one spot. Now, as I said, it is hard to track down. There are short clips of it on YouTube. but I haven't checked out Vimeo or any of the other uh, video streaming things. But uh, maybe a torrent search and a deep torrent search might bring you up. A copy of it. I recommend you, you watch it because it is just totally over the top craziness and um, there's, a, there's a political theme through it as well so it does talk to contemporary politics as it was in the 1960s, particularly youth politics and um, yeah, it, it's all in black and white and some of the clips are very scratchy and, and worn because that was the material that Joe Dante and his mate John Davidson had access to but it's the kind of thing that might inspire somebody to do it. And in fact, I'm, I'm watching it, I was thinking, I could put together clips like that. I've got the software on my computer. It's going to be a lot easier than it was for Joe Dante using glue and scissors and, and um, uh, an editing suite to put together this kind of compilation. And in fact, people are already doing it on YouTube a lot. And I'm tempted to kind of um, see what I can do with the exploitation stuff of my youth and uh, kind of work on it. So it's one of the many projects I've got now that I'm not doing anything else that I can really um, maybe have a go at and uh, just enjoy. Let me know if you want me to put together a, a trailer compilation or a bits from trailer compilation and put it up on YouTube. It might be a little bit of fun to do that. and might get a few likes on the tube of views. Uh, yeah, so there's not too much else to say about um, Movie Orgy. I didn't know about it until about a month ago. I hadn't even heard of it. If you um, There's an old AV Club interview with Joe Dante where he talks about it a little bit and how Davidson got him the clips. But, um, yeah, I would... To be honest with you, I've seen the four-and-a-half-hour one now. I'd love to see the seven-hour run of Movie Orgy and just for the fun of it and uh, to enjoy just totally... Immersing yourself in this curated popular culture audiovisual deluge that he put together in 1968, which is you know almost half a century ago, but it's still a lot of fun to watch. So anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When I get back, we're going to talk about Ashville Jungle, the crime thriller. It's film noir to some people. Uh, directed by John Houston, starring Sterling Hayden, Sam Jaffe. Uh, it's got Brad Dexter in it, Louis Calhoun, Marilyn Monroe in one of her breakthrough roles, and a number of other fight actors.
2: Only the author of Little Caesar could tell so dramatic a story. Only the director of The Treasure of Sierra Madre could film it with such power. Only once in a decade does the screen come up with such absorbing characters. Sterling Hayden as Dix Handley, a hooligan with a twisted dream. Gene Hagen as Dahl, the Diamond Dance Dame who wanted to share that shabby dream. Let me go with you. Please, Dix, please. Are you crazy I'm on the lam? I want it bad, packing heat. If there's any trouble, what good would you be? I could drive want it on a killing ramp. You know what that means. I don't care. I just want to be with you. Lewis Calhern as Emmerich, the big-time mouthpiece with crime on his mind. Oh, I suppose a fellow should stick to his own trade, but uh, I know some pretty big men around here that might not be averse to a deal like this if they're properly approached. Highly respectable men, I might add. Sam Jaffe as Doc. He's got a million dollars in that little black bag and a jitterbug cost him every diamond. Marilyn Monroe as Angela, the easy-living green-eyed blonde.
3: Haven't you bothered me enough, you big banana head?
2: Just try breaking my door, and Mr. Emmerich will throw you out of the house. James Whitmore as Gus, the strong arm boy, a right guy in a wrong
3: world. you him. You haven't seen him really think. You're, your You're gonna wind up You're
0: gonna wind up a Well, this is a, a great film. I'm surprised I only saw it for the first time about a month ago. Uh, Everybody's got blind spots. It's one of those things where it doesn't matter how good a movie buff you are. There are always going to be things that haven't you haven't had time or access to watch. And for me. The Asphalt Jungle was one of those movies. Um, I still haven't seen Gone with the Wind either, but I'm not particularly worried about that. Nonetheless, it's um, a good crime thriller. It influenced other influential crime thrillers of later years, like 1955's Jules de Sam movie. Rafifi is directly influenced by The Asphalt Jungle because in the centre of this film is a jewellery heist where the criminals break through from... Um, a utility access way into a brick wall which is a part of um, a jewellery store basement where the safe is and they've got to dodge underneath an electric I-beam break into the safe and get away with the loot which is the the core right at the centre of the film of course DeSan did it differently by having the whole thing more or less silent which is terrific stuff but, um, again, it, it's one of those things where this movie was just such a hit and so well regarded that it'd be surprising if somebody if people didn't borrow bits and pieces from it. It um, definitely is film noir. It definitely is a good caper movie. And the thi- there are a number of things to love about this film. Um, a large number, in fact. Let's go through the main players and just get an idea about them because... Um, There are some actors here that are really putting in some of their best work in The Asphalt Jungle. You've got Sterling Hayden playing Dix Hanley, who's what they call a hooligan. He's a standover man, a a tough guy. And the thing is that these characters are all nuanced beyond what's strictly required by this kind of movie. Um, We get backstory for Dix, which makes him comprehensible, even though he does things that um, we can't in any way approve of. He, uh, his family owned owned, uh, a farm down south during the Depression and then they had quarter horses and uh, it was bluegrass areas of Kentucky. And the family lost the farm during the Depression and Dix did some robberies and went to jail because he was trying to save the family farm. He nearly got there but um, wasn't able to do it. So he's a man with a dream and the dream is to get the family farm back and live on it and give up the life of crime and kind of nastiness that he's been living. So he's a very understandable character. Then we've got Lewis Calhoun playing Alonzo Emmerich, who's a crooked lawyer uh, with a complicated life. And uh, Calhoun's really good in this one. He's... Um, kind of a degenerate but he's an understandable one he has a wife who he's been married to for 20 years who's an invalid and um, he's kind of does look after her and he's a carer in that sense but on the other hand he also has a young lady called Angela Finlay played by Marilyn Monroe in his um, house down by the river so he's got a mistress he's got um, a wife he's having trouble getting payments for his legal services as a lawyer from the people who owe money and therefore with his high flying lifestyle, he's on the verge of bankruptcy. And he's looking for a way out. And the way out is to bankroll and try to rip off these criminals who are going to do this massive jewellery heist. Then you've got Sam Jaffe as Doc Irwin Rydenschneider. Um, And Sam Jaffe in this one is fantastic People know him best for playing Dr. Zorba In the Ben Casey TV series But uh, by the way he was blacklisted by the House Un-American Activities Committee Not too long after this film was made But Sam Jaffe is great He's a dapper small man Very intelligent He's known as The Professor And he's while he's been in prison for his last stretch, he's come up with this fantastic plan to rob this particular um, jewellery store. And he knows what he needs. He needs a a box man. He needs somebody who can break into the safe. He needs a driver. And he needs a hooligan to keep everything in line to get this done. And so he um, goes to a guy called Cobby who runs... um, uh, book, he's a bookmaker, a illegal bookmaker, played by an actor called Mark Lawrence, who again was blacklisted, and uh, puts this together with Copy and decides that what he needs to do is get $50,000 stake money so he can pay off the box guy, the driver, and the hooligan and keep most of the more than a million dollars that he will probably get. From the jewelry heist. And the interesting thing about this too is that each one of the villains has a weakness. Um, in Dix's case it's that nostalgia for his family home. In the case of Alonzo Emmerich, the lawyer, it's that he's got a self image of the lifestyle he lives to live up he needs to live up to even though his cash flow is totally shit. The box man, um, played by Anthony Caruso, is a family man with a sick child, so he's got a lot at stake as far as his family is concerned. The driver, uh, Gus, played by James Whitmore, who's a hunchback diner owner. And the interesting thing is that his diner's got a sign up the side of it saying, American Food Home Cooking, which is kind of a slightly racist thing, but James Whitmore does a lot with a little in this particular role and his weakness is the fact that he's loyal to dicks and he's um doesn't take shit from anybody even though he does have a spinal deformity and um he's not a big guy so and um and of course the professor his weakness is young girls he talks about them when we first him going into uh the character played by mark lawrence's um place of business there's a pin-up calendar on the wall and the first thing he does is walks over and looks at the pictures in the pin-up calendar he's sex obsessed and which ultimately leads to his downfall in a very interesting way and i love the minor characters in this one the minor characters are fleshed out really really well doll played by jean Hagen, who you remember was the shrill voice woman in singing in the rain she had that kind of thankless role of being the comic relief woman who just didn't get it in Singing in the Rain. In this one, she's fantastic. Her character of Doll is um, works in a clip joint, so she's kind of like a Ten Cents a Dance kind of girl. Um, She's vulnerable, she's scared. Uh, You can tell that she's been badly treated by men. And she sort of falls in love with Dix. Uh, But Dix has a talk with her. uh, She asks to stay at his place for a while. And he says, stay if you want, but don't get any ideas, doll. So basically, he's standoffish because his dream doesn't involve women. It involves him getting the family farm back. It's his ID fix. And in spite of that, she ultimately does help him um, in the end of it. But the great thing about this is Jean Hagen is fantastic in this film. Her character's vulnerable and scared. But she's incredibly loyal and um, she she feels lived in, which I really like. A lot of these characters, particularly Dix and her, and Gus the Diner guy played by James Whitmore. And even um, Emmerich played by Lewis Calhoun. The characters all feel lived in, in a really interesting way, which wasn't always the case in movies of this time. Uh, It really does give you the feel that these are genuine guys and... They've got um, their own slang, which is kind of cool too. The cops are known as the happiness boys, which is kind of a backhanded uh, compliment to the cops. But, um, and the cops themselves are not without flaws. Uh, Lieutenant Dietrich, played by Barry Kelly, is corrupt. He's in the pocket, um, very much so, of Mark Lawrence's character, Copy. He takes kickbacks in order to stop his gambling joint being raided. And he's bent. But uh, John McIntyre, who's the police commissioner, Hardy... He uh, is kind of very much a self-promoter. He does PR stuff. He's a hard cop. It's all black and white for him. Even though the film's in black and white, of course. But it's all, his idea of law and order is black and white. He doesn't understand the social reasons why people commit crimes. He really doesn't have any idea. He does interviews with journalists where he talks about protecting the pub- public from robberies and rapes and things like that. And while he's doing that, that's one side of the law, and that's that's fine where as far as it goes. But there's a scene right near the end where he says that the guy they're looking for, in this case, Dix, who's on the run with Doll, doesn't have any human compassion or any human feeling. Now, everything we've seen of Dix in the previous 75 minutes of the film tells us that he is a person with feelings and with compassion. He, he's got a good friendship going with Gus. He gives Doll a place to stay when she doesn't have a place to stay, and th- this kind of, in a in a very subtle way, by um, Houston, tells us that. The cops just really don't understand the nature of crime and what makes people turn to crime. In Dixas' case, which is the biggest illustration of this in the movie, it's because of the effects of the Great Depression, which of course was caused by bankers being fucking idiots. And so there's there's a moral complexity to this film that you didn't often see in a lot of, even film noir. There are layers of character here and everybody brings their A-game to Whitmore's fantastic Um, Sterling Hayden's kind of taciturn persona is used to really good effect in this and he he does give more than he really has to playing dicks Cal Hearn playing against type because he was a romantic lead in the silent film days and on stage as well playing the um, older um, and morally weak lawyer is very good he's got a beautiful Shakespearean kind of voice which was actually used as the voice of Lana Turner's father in a movie I've talked about previously on in this very podcast, The Bad and the Beautiful, where there's a recording of um, the father of Lana Turner's character. It's actually Louis Calhoun reading out Shakespeare. So he's um, very much there. And Marilyn Monroe playing um, Angela is really hot in this. She's got um, a pantsuit on. She's full-on sexual. Um, and even though that became almost a caricature later on in things like Some Like It Hot, this is a fresh Marilyn Monroe without some of the life trauma she had later. And she was, I mean, sex on the screen. She really is sexy in that. She's a go-getter. She wants um, Alonzo to take her on a holiday to Cuba, and she's very much a kind of um, gold digger. Unashamedly, though, when she's um, interrogated by the cops, we see ultimately what she is, is a frightened young girl, incredibly out of her depth. So she gets a little bit of business there. we got Dorothy Tree playing May Emmerich, uh, the wife of Louis Calhoun. Again, a high-quality actor from the silent film era. And also she was a voice teacher. So she kind of had a couple of different careers. And her, kind of, her May is, is kind of vulnerable and supportive at the same time. She's a kind of tonic to the character Barbara played in Sorry, Wrong Number, who's a kind of shrill, hysterical invalid. Mae Emmerich in The Asphalt Jungle is still, you know, she's reaching out to her husband. She wants to kind of rekindle their relationship. She wants his support, but she also wants to support him. So you get a good feeling from these two veteran actors. That there are, they do, f- the characters feel lived in and they feel like they've been together for 20 years. And even though Lon has drifted and he's having an affair with Marilyn Monroe, the relationship between him and May is quite kind of nice you know, in a very fucked up way. And nice is a, a very wishy washy word to use, but it does feel like that they're kind of a couple and that's often a very hard thing to portray in a film where people don't really know each other we've got Brad Dexter in this as well playing a private eye who um, is Alonzo's guy to go out and collect debts and who gets ideas of his own Brad Dexter we know from The Magnificent Seven he was one of the seven he was also the guy who saved Frank Sinatra from drowning off the coast of Hawaii and ended up in a whole bunch of Rat Pack films and this is a younger Brad Dexter than we've seen in all of those films and you do get a sense of the tough guy in him with, with his kind of pale eyes and the surly working class attitude. He, he really puts that across um, incredibly well. Th- this movie's just got so much good acting in it. There are even things like a tiny cameo by Frank Cady, who was in Greenacres, playing um, uh, an eyewitness in a lineup. And in the lineup, you've also got Strother Martin, a very young Strother Martin in there. Uh, the- There's so much in this film, and and it all comes back to a couple of things. The direction where John Huston frames everything perfectly for the emotional tone of what's going on. uh, This is in the old Academy ratio. It isn't a widescreen movie or anything like that. But he does frame things and frames characters in in the frame. Really interesting. There's a claustrophobic feel to a lot of it, which really does... um, amp up the tension in various scenes and there are two really superb climaxes in this film one of which is the professor uh, who hires a cab driver to drive him to another city and they stop in a diner for a a meal and and a break and, and to get some gas and the professor sees a young girl dancing to a jukebox and stops to watch her because you can see the kind of lust in his eyes he uh, he's very much into much, much younger woman. He's a total Woody Allen kind of character in that sense. And he watches her jitterbugging and is mesmerised by it. And this, unfortunately, leads to his downfall and to his um, being caught by the police because, of course, this is a 1950s movie made under the production code. So the bad guys do have to... Um, ultimately pay the price for things. Now, the young girl in that one, who bugs in a very highly sexualized way, which is kind of um, part of what Houston was trying to get at in that particular scene with Sam Jaffe, was an actor called Helene Stanley. Now, Helene Stanley was in a whole bunch of things. She was the model they rotoscoped the Disney Cinderella from, amongst other things. And she had a... a bit of a career in, um, she worked for Disney, she was in the snows of Kilimanjaro, Uh, let's see, I'm just going back through her IMDB, Uh, Holiday in Mexico, I think I've seen that film but I can't remember anything about it, but she was in Carnival Story as well, Dial, Red Zero, Uh, and she was also part of a um, jitterbugging group called the Jive and Jackson Jills in uh, the 1940s. Uh, let's see what else we got. She was uh, played the young, she was the model for Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and the young wife in 101 Dalmatians. And she was married to Johnny Stomponato, the gangster who um, had an affair with Lana Turner, and that ended in his death when he was stabbed by Lana Turner's daughter. So there's a criminal uh, thing even in minor characters. In this particular movie, it really does work and there's a rawness to it Um, and yeah, it plays very well to modern audience because one of the things that Houston was able to do was get through a lot of things that were part of the production code. There's a suicide in this film which is done really, really well. Um, where all you can see is a person's hands just before the suicide. I'm not going to give a spoiler on that because I think it's something that's there to be discovered by um, a viewer. And there's that kind of having an affair with Marilyn Monroe. There's the blatant lust for young girls that the professor has. There's a relationship between Dix and Doll which really does work. And um, Jean Hagen in this is... I'm going to have to try to find more movies with Jean Hagen in them to watch because I think in this one she's really um, fantastic and has a vulnerability that you wouldn't realise that she could portray as an actor by seeing the kind of loud and clownish role she played in Singing in the Rain. And the ending of the story for Dix and Doll... It's poignant. It, it really is um, heartbreaking in a way, and it, it's a fitting ending. But it ends this hard bitten crime movie on an oddly elegant note and an oddly kind of elegiac note, which surprised me. Um, it Really, it's one of those things that I wasn't expecting to be the upshot of the plot as far as Dixon Doll were concerned. But I'm glad it played out like this because it's a very fitting way to end the film and to end their relationship. And um, I like it. I I like the horses in it, um, without giving too much of a spoiler. I like the horses in it as well. But this one is a movie that is up there in my pantheon of best film noir and I'm regretting not seeing it before now. It really has everything that I need from a movie like this. And it gave me much more as well. And just watching it for the acting, it's a very rewarding experience. And if you haven't seen Asphalt Jungle or you haven't seen it for a long time, revisit it or watch it for the first time because it really is important as a crime film. It's a part of Houston's film making career that I'd missed out on. And I've got nothing but good things to say about it. But anyway, that's about it this time around. Um, As I said, it's been quite a busy few weeks for me, and I expect things to get less busy in the future after this road trip of ours. But thank you for listening, and thanks again to the Patreon supporters, including the two Kerrys, our best boy, Kerry L, and our our studio accountant, Kerry H. And, of course, I'm going to i've got the time now i'm going to redo the patreon credits i promise and i've promised that before but things got complicated so i'm going to play the patreon credits we have and thank you very much for listening and um i'm going to end it on there and i'll probably play some music just after the patreon credits because post credit sequences are a way to keep the audience's attention so look after yourselves I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the Paleo Cinema podcast I'll be back in a week with the Martian Driving podcast after the great Canberra and Sydney road trip so I'll see you then thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them we have Tom our focus puller Sarah our special effects technician Ian our caterer Grant our Technicolor consultant Claire, our script doctor Gary, our prop master Morris, our music director Jan, our dialect coach Armin, our key grip Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler Elaine, our scientific advisor Julia, our casting director Chris, our camera operator Christopher, our gaffer Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress Tansy, the Foley artist Alyssa, the location scout Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Carrie, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.
1: Is a dope, a man of many faults, a clumsy Joe who wouldn't know a rumba from a waltz. The gentleman is a dope, and not my cup of tea. Why do I get a dither? He doesn't belong to me. The gentleman isn't bright. He doesn't know the score A cake will come He'll take a crumb And never ask for more The gentleman's eyes are blue But little do they see I am a beat my brains out He doesn't belong to me gentleman is a dope. He isn't very smart. He's just a lug you'd like to hug and hold against your heart. The gentleman doesn't know how happy he could be. Look at me crying my eyes out as if he belonged to me. no.